0: Our scripture reading for today, Proverbs 23, verses 1-8. through When you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you. And put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings. Flying like an eagle toward heaven... Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsels that you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Kristen good morning. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus. And I'm really thankful uh, that you are with us this morning. And as we uh, take a moment here to uh, look at this passage of scripture that... Kristen just read for us. I also wanted to uh, thank uh, Chip and Kristen for uh, serving. Uh, They serve in a lot of ways in our church community, and I know they're going to be jumping in to serving in uh, children's ministry. And really from the very beginning, Christ Community has been focused on a mission that's to be a caring family of multiplying disciples, influencing our community and world for Jesus Christ. And We believe that this discipleship, this process of learning to follow Jesus uh, with all that we are, all that we have, doesn't just begin when we're adults or doesn't just begin when we've graduated high school or college, but that uh, it begins at the very beginning. We believe that Jesus is interested in the whole of our lives for all of our lives, that that he isn't just interested in our lives on Sunday uh, or what we do at home, but that he's interested in the whole of our lives, work, school, play, everything, and that he's interested in, in all of of our lives, from our, our first breath until our last, um, which is why on Sunday mornings we don't just, we don't offer childcare or babysitting, we offer children's ministries. Uh, and in children's ministry, we as a church family support our parents and caregivers in the work of helping their children to learn to follow and love Jesus. In um, serving in children's ministry, it's probably one of the, the largest serving commitments that we have here at Christ Community because it matters so much and is so important. And as a caring family, every one of the children that call Christ Community home is a part of our church family. Uh, there are kids. Um, And serving in in children's ministry is an incredible opportunity to care for and love and nurture the children that God has entrusted to our church community. And so um, now is an opportunity to jump in and serve. And so the the next six months term of serving begins in July. And we'd love to help. Uh, you find a place to serve, if that's something that you would be interested in. So if you actually will grab that clipboard that you passed a minute ago and just send it back down your aisle. And if you are interested in learning more about what it would be to be involved in serving with our children, um, you can just write children in the other. There's a blank that says other. So if you just write children um, and, and jot down your, your contact info, uh, we'd love to uh, reach out to you and and. Tell you more about that. It's a joy to serve with you as a congregation. And I'm so grateful for the many of you who serve in various ways here, especially those of you who serve in children's ministry and who have already invested in the life of, of my kids um, in those spaces. So um, thanks for, for doing that. And as we begin to look at this text this morning, I'd love to pause and just pray uh, and ask for God's insight, His wisdom, as we uh, look at His word this morning. So, Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you have called us to yourself and that you have spoken to us uh, through your word and I pray that now we would have hearts that are ready to hear and not only to hear but to truly be transformed and pray this in Jesus name amen well, Rachel and I have begun a, a tradition, and whenever we're on a, a long road trip in the car, uh, at the point when the trip seems to be passing the slowest, or the train seems the most boring, or we're getting tired, uh, at that moment, when it kind of seems like we're getting desperate, but the, the time to stop is still a ways out, we push play on a Jim Gaffigan comedy special. We always have a few downloaded, so we're ready for that moment. And, and just like that, an hour has passed. Um, in the car it it makes the time fly and one of the reasons that we love Jim Gaffigan is that he loves what we love he loves what we all love, and that is food. If you've listened to Jim's comedy, he loves food. He even wrote a book called Food, a Love Story, which I think is one of the greatest book covers of all time, him marrying a hot dog. Um, so I love that. He talks a little bit about Kansas City barbecue in there. And, and this week, as I've thought more intentionally about food, it's, I've thought more intentionally about food than I have in a long time, and I realize how much my life revolves around it. Uh, I'm eat, I eat when I'm hungry. Uh, but I also eat just because food is there. So so this week, um, there was f- pizza in our fridge downstairs left over from an event the night before. And, uh, and I thought, well, even though I brought my lunch today, I should at least have, you know, two or three slices of this pizza because it's there. I wouldn't want it to end up in the dumpster. Um, and... I think about that also, earlier last week I was making a bottle for our youngest, Isla, uh, when I noticed I was getting the stuff out of the cabinet, and I noticed, "Oh, huh, there's a, a brownie here in the cabinet. Um, and again, it was there, so I thought, well, I should eat it. Um, and I didn't even think about it. That was the thing. I took it out of the Ziploc bag, I ate it. I'd, Seconds later, almost completely forgotten about it, until 15 minutes later when I was putting my three-and-a-half-year-old to bed, and I was laying in bed next to her, singing her songs, helping her to fall asleep, and she interrupted me mid-song, and she said, Dad, your breath smells like brownies. <laughs> Dad, why does your breath smell like brownies? <laughs> I was like, busted. She's like, why, like, I didn't get a brownie earlier. Why, why does your breath smell like brownies, <laughs> Yes, yeah, so yes, we, we eat to live, and we have to, but much of our eating is about more than that. We eat when we're bored, when we're lonely, when we're celebrating with friends, when we're happy, when we're depressed, when there's leftover pizza in the fridge. We're obsessed with food, and it, it, it fills our social media threads, right? We have entire television networks devoted to food. Um, and we wrestle with the consequences of it. In in obesity, uh, diabetes, heart disease, we're we're constantly trying new diets and new eating regimens. And we're also plagued as a culture with eating disorders, right? Food addiction, anorexia, bulimia, all these things. And so when we reflect on all of this that's true about food, there there are two things I think that, that we recognize. One is that we all know we have a food problem. And two we almost never equate that problem with sin. So we, we all know that in our culture, in our lives, we struggle with food. And yet we, we almost never equate that problem with sin. And, and maybe you're surprised to see that, that gluttony is one of the seven deadly vices, these seven deadly sins that we've been looking at about. And as Christians have thought about gluttony, the concern hasn't been primarily physical. It hasn't been, oh, be careful what you eat, or you might have a heart attack. The concern has been that this is actually something that is deadly to our souls. You might be thinking, okay, an extra cheeseburger, deadly to my soul? That seems a little far-fetched, right? But this is where we have to remember what vices and virtues really are. They aren't one-off acts. They aren't a single instance of sin or or, or a single good deed in the case of virtue. They are habits. They're patterns that shape who we become for better or for worse. So why did gluttony make it on the list of deadly habits? How did that one end up on the list? It's because your hunger can never be satisfied with food Your hunger can never be satisfied with food because, you see, this vice is not just for the overweight or the pre-diabetic, nor are you off the hook if somehow you're skinny and in great shape. This is a vice for anyone who asks food and drink to make them whole, to make their lives worth living, to make them feel okay. It's a vice for anyone who's tempted to believe that that the perfect meal or the best cheeseburger might just give me that satisfaction I've been looking for. It's a vice that subtly says food is enough. That with the right, we don't ever really say this consciously, right? But but underneath, this is what it says. With, With the right food, I don't need God. I don't need Jesus. Food will rescue me. Food will make me happy. Food will comfort me. What we're going to see this morning as we look at this vice and the corresponding virtue of temperance is that food is more than fuel. And secondly, that food can never fill you. And third, food can be redeemed. So that's going to be kind of our roadmap for this morning. that, That food is more than fuel, it can never fill you, and it can be redeemed. And we need to see that, that food is more than fuel first. If we're going to wrestle this, we have to see that food is more than fuel. Right from the beginning of the Bible uh, and, and all the way through the Bible to the end, the food is pictured as a good gift. It's, it's more than energy just to make a machine run. You know, as human beings, we're not just machines that need energy. And food is that energy. We're much more than that. On page two of the Bible, God places human beings in the midst of a beautiful garden full of good things to eat. He's given us food as an incredible gift. And all throughout the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, God's people are called to celebrate with feasting. To throw big parties, lots of food. And Jesus' first recorded miracle in the Bible is turning these huge pots that are filled with water, these massive jars, turning that water into wine to keep a wedding feast going. And when the very, one of the very last things that Jesus does with his closest followers before he goes to the, the cross, before he's crucified, is to celebrate the Passover meal, the Last Supper. And at the end of the Bible, we're given a picture of a great feast called the wedding supper of the Lamb. You see, food, it's so much more than fuel. It's, it's God's gift to us. You know, he could have made it tasteless. He could have made eating it a chore, just something you had to do. But he didn't. He made it delicious. He made it good. And our desire for food is a good thing. Wine is a gift to be enjoyed. Psalm 104 declares that God has given wine to gladden the heart. And as my seminary professor, Graham Cole, would always say, and I'll drink to that. And this is what sets the vice of gluttony and, and also the vice of lust, which we're going to look at next week, apart from the other deadly vices. And it's also why those are the two last ones on the list. They're on the last of the list of seven deadly vices or sins. Because they are both desires, appetites for good things that gone wrong. You see, both food and sexual desire are good, natural, God-given desires. The desire for these things is part of God's plan, his good plan for creation from the very beginning. They existed before sin ever entered the world. However, the vices of greed, envy, etc., those are Unnatural. They enter in only after we have been corrupted in a rebellion against God. And for this reason, they were considered much more deadly in the history of the church than gluttony or lust, which are simply a distortion of a good thing. And yet, food, like all good things, is powerful and easily abused. And gluttony can ruin your soul. Which is why we get such a vivid warning in Proverbs, which we heard read, when you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat. If you are given to appetite, do not desire his delicacies for they are deceptive food. So at this point, maybe you have some vague sense in your mind of what gluttony is, but w- what really are we talking about when we say gluttony? You see, gluttony ignores all the good purposes of food and drink and grabs onto them as purely self-centered satisfaction. A a way of filling an emptiness that only God can fill instead of seeing it as a gift from God or a means of, of celebrating with others. Again, your hunger can only be satisfied with the one who gave you the gift of food. Your hunger can never be satisfied with food itself. You see, gluttony is not just overeating or overenjoying the gift of food. Gluttony is when we make the pleasure of food an end in itself. Instead of seeing it as a gift from God or a means of fellowshipping with others, we recognize it, we turn it into this moment of self-centered pleasure. Again, and food is pleasurable. There's nothing wrong with receiving pleasure from eating a good meal. But that pleasure, when that pleasure begins to trump everything else, when we grow obsessed with that pleasure, seeking it out constantly, that's when it begins to turn into this vice that can turn us away from the one who was meant to satisfy us. So your hunger can never be satisfied with food. Food is more than fuel, but food can never fill you. Food can never fill you, and if you try to make it fill you, it will, in the end, consume you. Uh, the 16th century Dutch painter uh, Hieronymus Bosch imagined this um, dynamic vividly and, and a bit disturbingly in this painting. Um, It's a pretty disturbing picture of of gluttony. I don't know, it kind of makes me hungry just looking at it, right? You got the people in there, uh, the demon's mouth is open, eating the people who are eating the the food. Um, It's a little bit extreme. You kind of, I kind of meant for you guys to laugh at that. You weren't really laughing at it. Maybe it's too disturbing. Um, But this is, yeah, it's a vivid picture of what uh, kind of this dynamic of food consuming us would look like. Again, food is good, but gluttony turns it into a self-obsession and it doesn't stop there. Um, we want, I was just to make sure they had taken that down because I didn't want anyone to have nightmares if they looked at that too long. We want food to make us happy. Uh, we seek in it a comfort, a satisfaction that will, that will make even the hardest days okay. Now again, God has given us food to sustain us for us to enjoy, but it goes wrong when we look to food to provide what only God himself can give. Because while food is good, it's not God. And whenever we confuse the gift with the giver, we are on very dangerous ground. And we see this at the end of Proverbs chapter 23, where the author writes, Hear, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. And yes, gluttony and drunkenness, they can lead us to a place of poverty and rags, it's true. It can also ruin our physical health. But more than that, it turns our heart away from the way of wisdom, from the path of life. See, one of the great declarations in both the Old and the New Testament is that human beings do not live on bread alone alone. And yet, that's exactly what we want to do when we slide into this pattern of gluttony. The glutton wants to find in food and in drink what only God alone can provide. See, the Apostle Paul, one of the leaders of the early church, uh, puts it this way in, in his letter to the Philippians. He writes, Join together in following my examples, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many enemies live, many live as enemies of the cross. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is their shame. You see, gluttony makes our stomachs our functional God. God. It makes our bellies the thing that we love and obey supremely. And here's what's important, too, to recognize that gluttony can take a lot of different forms. You can eat very little and still be a glutton. You can be very healthy. You can have the the perfect body, only eat organic, vegan, local, and still be a glutton. Because gluttony is all about our heart's desire for food and what we long to get from it about seeking to get from food that sense of comfort and control and joy and that sense that life is okay. Rebecca DeYoung in her book Glittering Vices offers a helpful acrostic to help us understand the different sort of forms that gluttony can take. This was really uh, helpful to me. and The acrostic is fresh. That is eating fastidiously, ravenously, excessively, sumptuously, Hastily, Those are the kind of the different forms that it can take. So, so again, none of these are wrong in themselves, but when they become our focus, our goal, our obsession, we have a problem. So the idea of eating fastidiously, that's the idea of, of being an excessively picky eater is a glutton. You may not eat a lot, but what you do eat has to be perfect, just right, exactly what you want, or, or you won't eat it. That's gluttony because you're obsessed with the pleasure of only eating what you want to eat. And some of us need to simply learn to just eat what's offered to us. Steve Jobs is a classic example of of fastidious eating. If you know any of his story or you've read the Walter Isaacson biography, Uh, at at times he would go for weeks only eating one type of food, apples or carrots. Um, He even kind of turned orange for a while like in college because he just ate carrots so much. Um, He had an incredibly restrictive diet. He was not overweight, but he made food the centerpiece of his life. That's gluttony. Ravenously. And I think this is a bit more of what we think of when we think about gluttony. The, The greedy eater, making sure that you get the biggest portion, eating quick to make sure you can get seconds. That's this idea of eating ravenously. And then there's the idea of of eating excessively, just just eating way beyond what you actually need to live. that's kind of like every Thanksgiving for me, just eating way more than I ever need to. Then there's sumptuously, this idea of only eating the best or the most filling parts. That's similar to to fastidiously, but it's just not as picky. It's obsessed with the best thing, with the desire to to feel full and and satisfied with the the finest things kind of food. And then there's this idea of, of hastily as well, just kind of get out of my way as I shove it all in. And when I think about my my own life as it relates to gluttony, I, I think it centers mostly on the hastily and the excessively. And one of the things that Rachel dr- drives absolutely drives her nuts is when we're getting ready to eat at dinner time, I'm usually really hungry. And I'll start eating food like off of our plates while it's still in the kitchen or out of the pot before we sit down. And she's just like, why can't you just wait until we all sit down together? Because I'm like eating little things out of the pot. And that's, I think that's that idea of hastiness, that I just, I can't wait for five more minutes until we've set the plates and we're all eating together as a family. It's that, that inability to wait. And I've also realized lately that I, I do, I eat when I'm tired or when I'm bored. Or simply because there's food that's there. And food can make us feel good. And There's, there's nothing bad about that. But I begin to realize that we ask often too much of food and drink. To provide too much enjoyment, too much nourishment, that we've placed our hope there. That our, just Our goal at the end of a long day is just to Sit down with a good meal to make it okay. Again, Rebecca DeYoung has really challenged me in this. And this quote in particular really just busted me this week. It's a little longer, but it's worth it. So it's on the screen. Just follow along. She writes, gluttony is not only about pleasure, but also about being able to find happiness in a pleasure we think that we can provide for ourselves. Rather than accepting food as a gift from God and looking to God to fulfill our spiritual hungers as well as our bodily ones, we take on God's responsibility for ourselves. She says, Gluttons want to be in charge of defining their own happiness and pleasure with its attainment firmly under their own control. When the gluttonous feel need or empty, they do not want to have to depend on God or wait for God to fulfill it. The pleasure of food is not only readily available, but something we can use to quell our own feelings of need and longing. With food, we can comfort ourselves, fill ourselves, provide pleasure for ourselves, if only physically and if only for a short while. And then she concludes and says, the glutton's pursuit of happiness is found in what is He can do, not in what God will give him. Wow. Are you beginning to see then why gluttony can be actually deadly to our souls? But there's hope because food can be redeemed, can be redeemed through the embodiment of the virtue of of temperance. Listen to what Proverbs 23, 17 through 19 say again. It says, Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Hear, my son, and be wise and direct your heart in the way. You see, when it comes to gluttony, the fear of the Lord, having the right hope, directing our hearts in the right way, looks like temperance. But I think there is just as much confusion about what temperance is as there is about what gluttony is. And and even 65 years ago, C.S. Lewis recognized this this conclusion. He writes that temperance is unfortunately one of those words that has changed its meaning. He says, now it usually means teetotalism, this idea of abstaining from alcohol. But in the days when the second cardinal virtue was chastened temperance, it meant nothing of the sort. Temperance referred not specifically to drink, but to all pleasures. And it it meant not abstaining, but going the right length and no further. I think that's really key. It meant not abstaining, but going the right length and no further. This is the virtue of temperance. It's not making too much or too little of food. It's understanding what food is as a gift and receiving it as a gift and treasuring the giver as the only one who can truly satisfy our hunger. So I want to suggest for us this morning three ways of pursuing temperance as it comes to our eating. That is first, to learn to live on more than bread alone. We have to learn to live on more than bread alone. If we're going to escape that gaping mouth of gluttony, we have to learn deep in our souls what it is to live on more than bread alone. And some of you are probably already anticipating where this is going. Perhaps the the most effective and practical way of rehabituating ourselves when it comes to food is to abstain from it for a time. The spiritual discipline of fasting. Because fasting both helps us recognize in fresh ways the dependence that we have on food, In in good and unhealthy ways. And it also strengthens our ability to say no to the gluttonous patterns of eating and drinking in our lives. Now, some of us have only ever fasted when you've had to because of a doctor's appointment or surgery. But even Jesus practiced the discipline of fasting. As we read the gospels, this is part of what Jesus uh, models for us. And I'm not sure it's wise to suggest that Jesus was, was off base in that. So I think for all of us, we need to learn at times to, to try out some of these spiritual disciplines that we see even Jesus doing. So this week, uh, I'm actually going to do, and I'm not somebody who practices the discipline of fasting well. But this week on Tuesday, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. I'm going to fast from, and I'm just going to do breakfast and lunch. And then I'm gonna end that day with feasting with my family. But I'd love for to invite you to, to join me in that. Maybe this week, you know, fasting's not an easy thing to do, but maybe it's easier if we do it together. Maybe you just try that this week. I've never really done that. But maybe just say this this week, maybe even Tuesday, we can all do it together and say, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna take a break from eating just breakfast and lunch. And I'd love to even, if you do that, and there's no pressure to do that, but if you do that and you say, I leave in love, send me an email. Tell me what it was like. What did you learn in the midst of that? It's a hard thing to do. It might be a little less hard if we if we try to, to jump in, take a small step together in that this week. And again, obviously, if there are health reasons, all that, you know, don't do that. But I think that for the vast majority of fasting uh, from food for a day, or even fasting for, for a month from certain things, food, sweets, alcohol, desserts, can be an eye-opening and a transforming experience for us. Saying no helps you to enjoy what you have. It reminds you that you are more than what you eat. It reminds you that while all food is more than fuel, it's, it's not less than that. It's good even to be reminded of our dependence on food for fuel. So learn to live on more than bread alone. Second, we must pursue temperance by delighting in community and celebration. And this is vital because, yes, Jesus fasted. He practiced that discipline. But he was also accused by his enemies of being a glutton and a drunkard precisely because he celebrated so heartily and modeled to us what it means to enjoy God's good gifts. So yes, Jesus fasted, but he also celebrated richly. Again, Jesus turned massive amounts of water into a massive amount of wine to keep a wedding feast going. And this is why food is always wrapped up in moments of celebration, and it's a vital part of hospitality. It's why we celebrate holidays, vacations, weddings, birthdays, graduations with good food and good drink. We must do that. We must celebrate Enjoy those good things. I think one of the most transforming habits, um, liturgies, if you will, that our family has instituted together is is eating at our dinner table as often as we can. It's where we give thanks to God for the food he's provided. It's where we learn to eat well together. It's where we learn conversation and other-centeredness. Food can be such an occasion for, for prompting and, and uh, enjoying conversation with one another. At just about every dinner, Lucy, our, our three-year-old, who asked about the, the brownie breath, um, she'll ask me a question. She says, she'll say, she always stops, kind of Rachel and I will be talking, she always stops and says, Dad, Dad, I have a question for you. And she'll say, Dad, how was your day? And we didn't teach her that. But it just, and the pattern of that conversation, she'll hear Rachel ask, How was dad? And how, or, you know, Bill, how was your day? I also ask that question. She loves to ask that question now. Dad, 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 I have a question. How was your day? Around the dinner table, we begin over food to learn these patterns of conversation, of celebration. And I believe also increasingly the work of evangelism, of sharing the good news that that Jesus reigns and that he can rescue us, will not start at at church here or at a conference, but around our dinner tables. Who are we inviting to share our meals with? Who's celebrating with you? See, Christians ought to be known as people who know how to celebrate. So feast, feast. Practice the discipline of making and enjoying good food together. And then finally, always bring Christ to the table. Whenever you pause to eat, even if it's for just a quick snack, give thanks to God for his provision. In the Lord's Prayer, which we prayed earlier, we were taught, we are taught to ask this, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. And while in the context of that prayer, daily bread is a stand-in for much more than simply just the food that we eat. But it's not less than that. It's never less than that. And we ought never to take for granted that every meal, every snack is an answer to the Lord's prayer, His provision of daily bread. And Did you have breakfast this morning? Did you have a donut hole as you sat down to eat or to, to worship this morning? Then you experienced an answer to prayer. Yes, the donut holes are an answer to prayer. Because it's daily bread. Every time we eat, we are experiencing an answer. To the Lord's prayer of give us this day our daily bread. That's why Christians pray before eating, right? This is if you if you haven't grown up around the church very much, maybe you've experienced this, you see people praying in a restaurant. Why is it that, especially evangelical Christians have this odd practice of of stopping and praying before they eat up? Because this pattern of recognizing that every meal is a gift. It's an answer to prayer. It's a recognition that God has heard and answered our prayers for daily bread. And as we pray, we turn our attention to the one, the only one who can truly satisfy our hunger. So we always bring Christ to the table because he first invited us to his table. It's why we celebrate communion every week. It re-enchants our food. It reminds us that food is never just food, but it's all food. is Christ's provision for us. And reminds us that truly we depend on Jesus, not just for the food that we need to eat, but for everything in our lives he sustains us. And in the communion meal, Jesus gives us a pattern of remembering, of tasting this ultimate provision. The forgiveness of our sins and the gift of life that is truly life. For in the communion meal, Jesus is not just giving us food to eat. He's giving us himself. He is the bread of life. Jesus says in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So now I want to pause and pray. And then we will come and feast together at the Lord's table. Father in heaven, would you help us as your people to enjoy the good gifts of food that you have given us and protect us from never seeking in them what only you can give us. In Jesus' name, amen.